This is Todd from the Junkyard Outreach. Welcome and thanks for joining me. For more information and episodes, check out junkyardoutreach.com. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So why so many different churches? Now, I am not an expert in church history. I'm a student, but I find it a fascinating topic of study for many reasons. So I'm going to attempt to, in just a few minutes, summarize a basic framework of church history according to what I have learned, hoping to whet the appetite of every listener, prompting them to delve into their own study and enrich their understanding of how good God is and how messed up mankind is. Also, there is a lot to church history. This is not exhaustive by any means. This is only a sample. There are more churches and more splits and things like that that would take a long time to go over, but this is a basic to kind of get people to understand, oh yeah, okay, I get it. Some of this craziness actually now makes sense, and that's what I'm hoping to do, is just make a little sense out of all these different churches you see around. And as a side note, there are church history online video courses that are free. Some of them are really good. There are books that if you are interested, they're really good. One book I find helpful is Bruce Shelley's Church History in Plain Language. And I am not much of a book reader, but I did read that. I did a Bible college course, and that was one of the textbooks that they used. And it was very helpful for those of us that don't have a capacity to read some of the old stuff where the words are so big and complicated. You're like, what does that even mean? There's also free resources online. If you download eSword Bible software, you can get Philip Schaff's Church History for free. And I'm not sponsored by eSword or anybody else, but these resources have helped me begin to understand some of the basic history of the church. As I began to read Philip Schaff's Church History on eSword, I ended up buying the eight-volume set because it's that good. And this was published back in the 1800s, so modern church history is not included. But it's well worth the read. So there's lots of stuff out there that's available that's very helpful helpful in understanding this. And it's important to understand church history, where we came from. It answers a lot of other questions that we may have about church and government and Judeo-Christian ethics and all that. So Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus tells Peter that I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, there's a lot in this verse, but I don't want to deal with all that. I want to deal with two words, my church. Jesus church is referred also as the bride, the wife of the lamb in Revelation 21 verse 9, the body of Christ in many places, including 1 Corinthians 12, 27, the children of God in John 1, 12, where it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So these are the believers who were born from above, as Jesus says, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And these are the members of this church that Jesus refers to as my church. We need to understand there is one body of Christ. And in that body, there are many people from other churches that are included. They are the ones who did receive him, who believed in his name, who were given the right to become children of God, the true believers. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, the church was born. And with it, the kickoff began with the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples and introducing a new supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And much of the New Testament is teaching believers how to be a child of God, what to do, what not to do, how to do it, and how not to do it. So the church is born, and the apostles spread the gospel around the known world, leading many to Christ. And ultimately, the apostles die off. And in faithfulness to the word, as Paul wrote to his friend and travel companion, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.1, you then, my child, 
Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, that what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So they did this. Those people that were entrusted with the word from the apostles, they then entrusted the gospel to other faithful men who guarded it to the death, and the church continued to grow. The church was being strengthened by the Holy Spirit as it grew. And as a side note, the church was considered universal, or the word Catholic. The Jews were a nation based on their bloodline, but the Christians were, they were Jews, but the church was universal. You didn't have to have the bloodline. You didn't have to have the heritage. You didn't have to have all of the observances of the law. They were universal. Anybody could be a part of the new move of God. So when John wrote in John 3.16, that famous verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the invitation. Whoever believes, doesn't matter who you are, still great message. Whoever believes in him, and that word believe, it implies that you're trusting and hanging on to him. It's not like, oh, I kind of believe. It's, you know, I'm putting my life in his hands type of belief. So bloodline doesn't matter. Heritage doesn't matter. Religious practices doesn't matter. Anybody who believes in Jesus and trusting their life to him can be a part of the family of God. So the church continues to grow after the time of the apostles were alive, or simply put, the apostolic age. You might hear that term. That just means the age where the apostles were alive. So then persecution arises, and Christians are martyred left and right until about 300 AD when a new emperor came to power. And certain faithful believers, known as the church fathers, they take the torch and run with it, beginning in this time of insane persecution. They would defend the faith and over time hammer out much of the doctrines central to Christianity. And this new emperor, Constantine, claimed to be a Christian, and his influence in the Roman Empire legalized Christianity and stopped the persecution for the most part. And the church grows and begins to compromise the faith, and corruption seeps in with this new freedom. And since the city of Rome was the capital of the Roman Empire, the church at Rome began to take a leadership role over the other churches, and it became dominant in its influence. So the new emperor moves from Rome to modern-day Istanbul and sets up shop in the east while the church in Rome remains the focal point of the church. And this move to Istanbul, which was renamed as Constantinople, begins to separate the church in the west, Rome, from the church in the east, now set up in Constantinople. So drama at the highest level begins. And that drama between the two churches escalates, and in 1054, the two split formally in what's known as the Great Schism of 1054. Now the church in the west maintained that name Catholic. They now refer to themselves as the Roman Catholic Church. And the church in the East, who considered themselves Orthodox, referring to their insistence that they carry the true doctrines of the faith, they became known as the Eastern Orthodox Church. And we still have Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox churches today. Fast forward 500 years, and the Roman Catholic Church had tremendous political influence in Europe. Along with all that power came vast corruption. People were tired of the corruption, so they rose up and began protesting the church that it may reform its ways. And that became known as the Protestant, or protesting, Reformation to reform the church. So the Protestant Reformation kicks off. The Roman Catholic Church refuses to reform, rather try to kill everyone who would threaten their power base. They killed many, convicting them of heresy, who were simply referring to the scriptures as the true authority and not the Pope or the church. They burned many at the stake for simply possessing a Bible and did all they could to stamp out this nasty rebellion of Bible thumpers who simply wanted the word of God to be taught and obeyed. And this fueled the fires of revolution, resulting in another split. And this split formed three separate movements. 
Martin Luther, a Catholic monk gone rogue, was a powerhouse in the Reformation, and from his followers came the Lutheran Church. And Menno Simons, he stabilized a radical group called the Anabaptist, and that movement, once he brought it back down to earth, became known as the Mennonites, from which also came the Hutterites, the Amish, and similar groups. And Ulrich Zwingli, who we don't hear a lot about, but he was a major player in the Reformation, he was very outspoken as a Protestant, and he influenced a young Frenchman named John Calvin. And John Calvin's followers became known as the Reformed Church and the Presbyterians under John Knox's fiery preaching in what is now known as the UK. And also from this movement, the Congregational Churches and the Baptists came. And from the Baptists came the Churches of Christ and the Adventist Churches. And this didn't happen overnight by any means. It took a while for some of these churches to come to life, but many sprang up very quickly as people were moved to worship Jesus in the way that they felt was correct. Now, you go to England, the English being ruled under Henry VIII remained Catholic until Henry fell in love with another woman and wanted to divorce his wife, who was from European royalty. He petitioned the Pope to annul the marriage, but the Pope said no, likely due to the politics involved in the marriage, which would not be good if he said yes. So Henry got mad and created his own church. He booted out the Catholics and said, nope. I am now the supreme head over the Church of England instead of the Pope, or as it should be, Jesus. So this new Church of England, or what will become known as the Anglican Church, came into be because a wicked king didn't get his way and get a divorce. And the Anglican Church, as it came to the U.S., would be called the Episcopal Church. And from the Anglican Church also came the Puritans. Also from the Anglican Church came the Methodists. And from the Methodists, several churches sprang up over time, such as the Salvation Army, the Nazarenes, the Missionary Alliance, and more. So adding to this, in the early 1900s, the Pentecostal movement came along in the U.S. and shook the Christian churches as this movement claimed the Holy Spirit was bringing back to life the spiritual gift such as the gift of tongues, or more accurately, the gift of languages. And this lit hair on fire everywhere. The modern-day churches of the day did not like this kind of craziness. And the Pentecostal movement said, these spiritual gifts are for today, when people were saying they weren't. But there was a legitimacy in the fact that if you take the spiritual gifts according to Scripture, you use them according to Scripture, you seek the Lord, He will give them in His time to His people, which He chooses. So I am from that camp where the spiritual gifts are not only believed, they are used. And we just saw this last week at a conference. I was at. And it was very orderly. It was very edifying. It was very much consistent with Scripture. It's very cool. But out of this movement came the Assemblies of God, the Church of God, four square churches, Calvary chapels, vineyard churches, and more. And so as we look at church history, it's a subject that everybody should study because not only does it explain a lot about where we came from and why the pilgrims hightailed it to America, but also the mountains of lessons we learn from others' mistakes. Like what happens when you water down the Word of God or remove it from its rightful place? Or what happens when government gets involved in church? On the other hand, what happens when God lights a fire again and people respond to their calling and get back to the scriptures and live according to faith in Jesus? Cool things happen. God is glorified and the light of the gospel begins to shine again. Thank you.